fake, fake, fakety fake. Hi, I'm Jody. I'm Caitlin. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News, then use my friend Caitlin as a detoxifying ointment as I purge the foul bits of information that I've audibly digested. <laughs> Great. <laughs> that one was a bit of a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> this episode, we will be covering the week of November 18th. How are you, Caitlin? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am doing great, actually. I feel uh, more rested than I have been in the recent past, and I don't know why. Hmm. Thank you for listening, and uh, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash imperialnews. We would love to eventually upgrade our equipment to make this podcast sound better, so we need your help. You can also help by promoting our show to friends and sharing it on social media, and you can leave us a review if you like. Also, I wanted to give you a heads up because there's something I'm working on. I am considering starting to uh, read basically Ezra's books. And so next week, I'm hoping that we will have an episode out, which will be our first episode on Shakedown by Ezra Levant. I'm already a few chapters in, so uh, it's interesting. <laughs> I can't wait to go through it, uh, especially how bad it is, which it, it is really bad. So what we're likely going to do is starting next week is we'll do... Uh, kind of like maybe an abbreviated episode that still cover the whole week and then we'll do an additional episode during the week that'll be like chapter one or however we decide to break it down because it could be that two chapters are really short and we'll shove them together or something mm-hmm. but and then i guess the plan going forward is i guess when we're done this book we'll we'll take a break and then we'll do the next one but also, like, we might skip a week in case something like the Don Cherry thing happens again. And like, then yeah, yeah. That's going to take up way more time. <laughs> but yeah, so that's it. So look forward to that. But for now, we're going to get right into it. We're going to start the Imperial Roundup. Yeah, it's Roundup, yeah. <laughs> I know our own show, Kate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. November 18th. The first half of the show in the main segment uh, is going to be our main segment. So we're just going to skip that and jump ahead to the interview section of this show, which is with Sheila, who's on The Rebel. <laughs> and I feel like The Rebel just likes to interview themselves and talk about how great they are and I, I will say three of the five interviews this week are with fellow rebel employees. Oh God, so. <laughs> giant circle jerk. Ew. It is just one giant circle jerk. And part of that is because of what they're going to be talking about uh, in this uh, interview section, which is that the rebel hosted a debate this week in Alberta uh, regarding the Wexit stuff. And we're not going to cover most of it here. I'm sure they're going to post the debate. And I'm still not sure if I want to watch it or not. <laughs> but uh, that's what happened. I saw a poll about other provinces' um, opinions or if they're happy about weeks it or weeks it, whatever the fuck it's called, who cares? Um, whether they're happy or dissatisfied. I think it was like 65% of Quebecers are happy about Alberta leaving. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> uh, but then it was like Albertans. It was like only like 
35%. And then I saw on a Twitter post saying Quebec wants Alberta to leave more than Alberta does. <laughs> uh, I believe uh, it's it. Good. Yeah, it's really good. The interesting thing, like we talked about, uh, we talked about Peter Downing, who was the guy they got on to interview. And it was uh, interesting because even here they kind of throw subtle shade at him, but they're throwing shade at him. They're saying like, well, he seems like a nice guy, but he doesn't seem to be prepared and doesn't have a plan. And so, <laughs> and uh, they even speculate that maybe Alberta should join the United States. And Sheila makes some claim that if they join the, the Union, that uh, Alberta would be the most prosperous, prosperous state in the Union. And I don't know that that is true, but that's what she says. And so I think they're just throwing everything at the wall because they want to ride this energy but i don't know i don't i don't see ways it going anywhere especially if what you say is, is true and alberta doesn't even want to separate uh yeah yeah i think it was like 35 percent said they're dissatisfied and then even like ontario had higher uh satisfaction rates with wags yeah. <laughs> the highest was go back so yeah i did want to play a clip though that it isn't directly related to what we're talking about here, only in the sense... Oh, well, like, it is related, but I, I care less about the fact that it's about Wexit and all this stuff. I just wanted to play this clip because it highlights the kind of, like, rhetorical trick that Ezra uses, and so let's have a listen. I think that the most important thing the rebel can do in the short term here is to be a good-faith house of debate. Yep. And when I say that, I mean in contraposition to so many absolutely awful things being said in the Toronto Star, by the CBC, the Globe and Mail. Um, most of them start with, Dear Alberta, we really like you. And as your best friend, we're here to give you some advice. The advice yeah. invariably includes, hey, guys, stop denying climate change. And will you just shut yeah. down uh, the oil industry already, Kay? The reason I wanted to play that was because this is the same thing we played. I feel like it was a couple weeks ago where that dude from Newfoundland, who's a lawyer, wrote an op-ed for CBC's Newfoundland website. And that is the only article that I've ever come across that has that tone. But you can notice that Ezra took that one story that he covered on his show and has now stretched it out to being basically the Globe and Mail, the CBC, they're all writing these pieces. I haven't come across these pieces. I don't know that they've existed, and Ezra has not specifically said, oh, this piece here or that piece there. But it's like he just takes this one arguably bad written article and then somehow makes this into a huge plot by the news media to, to say something. They're all up to get him. Yeah, and the, the best part is... <laughs> the best part is uh, Sheila then says that this is... These are all the Laurentian elites. I guess from Laurentian University or something. <laughs> I didn't know Laurentian. I, where is even Laurentian? Thunder Bay? No, that's Lakehead. Uh, no, that's Lakehead. I can't... Good question, right? Quebec? Quebec? Laurentian. Maybe, I can't. I, I don't swear it's know. in Ontario. Whatever, we don't need to look it up because it doesn't even matter because the thing is, it was one lawyer from Newfoundland. <laughs> I don't know if that qualifies as being a Laurentian elite. Uh, but anyways, they end the, uh, the interview by telling people to go watch the debate and if you want tickets for the events they're going to cost $60 hmm. to go watch uh, one of the debaters was Lauren Gunter <laughs> oh, <gross. laughs> yeah 
old boomer Lauren Gunter is debating some other person. I can't remember their name. So, but uh, I had a dream the other day that we met him. Lauren Gunter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened in the debate? I don't dream. remember. It was very brief. It wasn't a like very detailed dream. Oh, hi, Kate. Did enjoy? You know what? I'm Lauren Gunter. <laughs> no, the reason why is because you sent me um, that clip of Eric Andre going oh, yeah. to that Breitbart. Um, with Joe, pa- Joe Pollock? With Joe Pollock, yes. And for some reason I had a dream, but it was me and you, and then going to a convention, and Lauren Gunther was there. Oh, God. And I don't even know what he looks like, so I, like, created this, like, false <laughs> image. <laughs> no, I don't even know what he looks like either. No, no, it's never, like, I've Googled this, is, like, yeah. his picture or anything. So I created this old person that represented Lauren Gunther, so. Nice. Yeah. One day I hope that does happen. I don't hope that happens. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'm going to end this, the November 18th uh, portion, uh, by discussing the male segment. And I usually don't cover the male segment because it's usually just, again, a circle jerk of of kinds. That's like the majority of the show, though, is just them like loving themselves. But it's like another level of loving because it's not just them loving themselves, but their audience loving with them. And it's like, whatever, don't need to cover it. But yeah. He said some interesting things, and I want to play them, so here we go. I have to think that this mine, I mean, I, I, said it, I said it on Friday. I said it wasn't just a financial benefit. I said moral and uh, spiritual, I think I even said. And I mean that. How could an iron mine be something moral or spiritual? Because you're giving people meaning. Get up and work. We're depending on you. Uh, be an example. You know, and one of the issues they have in these in these remote communities, people are bored. They start using drugs or alcohol. No, you got to show up that on time, sober, ready to work. It's a whole abuse. it's a whole way of approaching the world that you don't get when the government is the sole provider through welfare or handouts. <laughs> so he's basically saying that mines, yeah, and just like steelwork, is kind of like this mecca of conservative values and it installs like a spiritual experience when you look at them because it's representing everything conservative. Well, workers never drink or do drugs. No, not at all. <laughs> if you're working, you can't do that. No, never. It's, you can never. Because it's such a spiritual experience. They're completely mutually exclusive from one another. The, <laughs> the main reason I wanted to play that, because I think we discussed this uh, in another episode about like the Protestant work ethic. Yeah. And like to me, this is a clear sort of like distillation of that. Like Absolutely. work, work yeah. itself is this spiritual force that like. Or it's just this like. It's moral, a good in itself. Moral belief that if you work really hard, you're a better person. Yeah. Like to me, honestly, like I don't really think there's anything wrong with be not doing things. It's just we've attached so much meaning to the idea of working super hard that if you're a hard worker, you're for some reason better. But the only reason you are, because there is some truth to why you're better, you're better because you're contributing to the current system that we have in place, right? You're, you're perpetuating it. Yeah. People that don't do that much, and I'm not saying that they're lazy, um, or I'm not saying that they like don't contribute. People that don't live to the expectations of society by working hard, quote unquote, right? Um, I think kind of defy 
those ethics and morality. And especially if a person's okay with it. So we have to demonize them in some way by saying, oh, they're going to go do drugs and alcohol and be abusive. And right, you know, like we have to yeah. criminalize them in, in such a way or to demonize them and make them feel like that they're less than. So then we can just perpetuate these morals further. Yeah. Because you don't want to be like those people, right? Ooh, not those people. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's all of that's true. It's just weird because I've never, I mean, of course you would assume that this is, is his worldview, but it's like so clear in that case that like he, I don't, work holds such a moral value to him. But I think it does for everyone. I just think that conservatives. Well, I would say a large portion of the population. I even think people that are very left-leaning attach, like when I No, but that's why I say large. Like, yeah. it's more than 50%. Like, there's definitely... Uh, and, like, again, like, as you were saying, like, there's some sense in which having something to do is good. Like, boredom isn't something that we want either. I actually but I think, think there's most, anything wrong with boredom. Well, I mean, in the sense that if you if you have... If you have idleness and you have opportunity to like do things most people will find something to do whether that's like it doesn't necessarily have to be work but it could be like making art constructing something yeah but i also think boredom in itself is okay like it's okay to have periods of boredom because boredom eventually leads to you thinking about things and potentially leading to like more creativity and innovation and like actually like I guess I'm thinking of boredom just in terms of negative affect, where like, I I think what you're describing is more like contemplation or sitting in, uh, or just not doing anything to appreciate not doing anything. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is a little different than what I consider to be boredom. Yeah, well, I mean, there's actually like whole boredom studies where people actually, no, like it's true, they'll like debate these ideas, like is boredom bad, right? Like, is it really a bad thing in itself? And that's like a subsect of like theory and criticism uh, kind of work. But I mean, some of it's interesting. Some of it's yeah. just total fluff. But uh, I just would like to see like Ezra take a challenge where he sits on a couch and doesn't do anything for like 30 days of his life. And like the world would be a better place if he did. <laughs> I know. But I just want to like prove the point that if you went and did that, like you would be fucking miserable. Like you just just sat there and you decided to like drink and you're just lazy like how he that's what like that's what I'm trying to get at is like there's like people don't want to do that. Right. Right? Like they they don't wanna It's not a choice. It's not like something you know what? I wanna drink and do drugs until my life sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it's I'm sure if he went yeah. if you challenged him to go do it, he would um he'd be absolutely fucking miserable within those thirty days. And if he could actually take up that challenge and do that and realize that then maybe he would understand that people don't get put into those positions by choice they get put into it because of systemic inequalities and understanding that you can't just go fucking pick up a shovel and, or yeah you know go to a mine and start working on the steel and the iron and like i don't know like it's just ridiculous yep so i just wanted to play that the, there was another clip as well i'm gonna play it uh, that is also fascinating to hear from Ezra. So we'll play that. You know, when I went to, to Tuk to Yuk Tuk a few years back, about a thousand people live in Tuk. And they built a, a road from Inuvik to Tuk to Yuk Tuk. There's a thousand people at the end of the road. Let me tell the story. You know how much money was spent on this road? A quarter of a 
billion dollars. There's only a thousand people. Let's call that 250 families. So there's 250 families, and they spent 250 million just on a road. That's a million bucks a family just for a road. And everything has to be flown in. Why? Why are we doing it? Why would we spend them? Like, it's insane. What direction do you think this is going? It's like I'd be something about tax money, uh, taxpayers' money, like how that's wasting. So that was my initial thought. Yeah. But then watch how he finishes this. Well, the answer is not an economic one. It's a strategic one. It's a sovereignty one. It's a military one. It's a national pride one. It's a nationalist one. If you want the North to be Canadian, then you must support that. So he's saying we need to use taxpayers' money to build a road of little consequences to claim Northern sovereignty, and that's something that's like good because of nationalism. Which is weird considering that he's like an anti-tax libertarian. Only if it's for fascism, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was so weird leading up to that point, though, because I'm listening to it going, he's just going to make that kind of like bridge to nowhere claim of like, we're just throwing tax money at something yeah. for no reason. That's and what then, I kind of thought. And then it just veers off into this like super pro-nationalist point, which was surprising to me. But that was the, the mailbag uh, segment of that show, and... Guess we're done with that, so we'll move on to November 19th. Ezra begins while his show, and he's in a forest. <laughs> Why? Well, he's in Alberta he for his debate. But... Uh, he likes to change <laughs> locations here and there, right? Like, he likes to spice things up. But it's weird. It's like, he could have gone anywhere. And he says, he's like, hi, right. I'm he reporting gone... from a forest. <laughs> He has gone everywhere, though. He's gone in a taxi cab in the UK. Yeah. You know, he's done that quite a few times, too. So, yeah. Or did you show me a clip like a couple of weeks ago of him just like in a field? Oh, that was David Menzies. <laughs> David field. Menzies. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah, they do this all the time. Gotta spice it up. So, Hezra's in a forest, and he then decides to do a brief rundown on all the lawsuits he's pursuing right now. And he particularly focuses on a lawsuit involving Sheila Gunn Reed's book which was uh, called Stop Notley. And the lawsuit actually it doesn't directly have to do with her book, but with lawn signs that they made for her book, just like they did with the Lebranos. Uh, during the provincial election in Alberta, they put their Stop Notley signs everywhere, and they're being investigated uh, for election violations for not registering as a third party when they put these stop not these signs all over Alberta during the election, right? Alberta, for those who don't know, the, the NDP were the, the leaders of Alberta. Uh, Rachel Notley was the premier. And just recently... The, oh, so that's why it's called Stop Notley. Yeah. yeah. The UCP uh, ousted Notley, and now Jason Kenney is the premier with the Conservative Party. Uh, so he's... He's being investigated for possibly violating election laws by not registering as a third party. And he's specifically upset because recently the, the person who works for the Elections Commission, uh, Lauren Gibson, he's been fired by Jason Kenney. Uh, well, basically fired. They passed a bill that sort of like removes him. Mm -hmm. And this has been controversial for Jason Kenney, who's the, again, the leader of the Conservative Party, because he's actually being investigated for fundraising uh, 
controversy or violations that happened in 2017. So he's firing the guy who's investigating him, which seems a little sketchy. But Ezra is really pissed off because even though this Lord Gibson guy is being canned, and he's happy he's being canned because again, Lord Gibson's investigating him too. Yeah. Ezra's still being investigated, even though this guy is <laughs> so he's, he's upset about it. And he's like, why can't Jason and Kenny just get in there and stop them from investigating? <laughs> so that's interesting. I wonder if that's going to be him turning against Kenny. But again, like, he's on the outskirts of the conservative party. He wants to so be in their good lights and on their side, but they really want nothing to do with him. That's because Ezra sucks. Yeah. Well, I mean, they don't want to deal with him. Not because they don't agree with him. They no, I clearly yeah. do agree with him. It's 100%. more of like a, a PR kind of thing. Yeah, because he makes them look horrible. Right. Like, he is horrible. Ezra then talks about the ongoing lawsuits that he also has with the venues that he alleged uh, broke their contract during his Lebrano book tour. Uh, so if you can remember, he was going to do these book signings and... People called the venues and the venues canceled and he claims that they're breach are breaking contract, breach of contract. But then he's also, he said before, and now he's doing it, that he wanted to sue the people who called the venues claiming that they induced a breach of contract, even though I think it's meritless. He's not going to succeed at that, but he's super excited to try this new way to kind of like destroy leftists. And then he said he's also suing a lot of people on the left who contacted these venues yeah, because they called him a Nazi. But look, I'm not going to be a victim here. I just refuse to be. I did nothing wrong. They did something wrong. We don't ban books. We don't do the equivalent of a book burning. That's what canceling a book signing is like, really. <laughs> so he's not a victim. And then he just compared uh, canceling a book signing to burning books. Yeah. They're, in Ezra's mind, morally equivalent. Now look at then what he says when he talks about the people he's suing for defamation. So we're suing the theater owner and all these deplatformers for that money and for defamation. Sorry, you just can't publicly call me a Nazi. It's not true. By the way, learn some history. It was the Nazis who were the book burners. So by insinuation... Ezra just called all the people that called him a Nazi, Nazis. Yeah. By, <laughs> by insinuating that the Nazis were the book burners and the people who canceled the book signing were also book burners because they're equivalent and therefore the people who are calling him a Nazi are the real Nazis. And then that tells me that these people can then sue Ezra for calling them Nazis. And the just universe... be like a whole <laughs> suing fest. Uh, and then Ezra will go back and be like, I'm going to sue you because you sued me because you think I'm a Nazi. Yeah. And it'll just keep going around and around. He then uh, interviews Joel Pollock, again, from Breitbart. We mentioned him earlier oh in the uh, Eric Andre segment. And, yeah, it was a really stupid interview. He, It's basically about impeachment and the 2020 elections. Mm -hmm. But all the impeachment stuff was just so stupid. So I guess at the time when this episode aired... Pretty much you just had three people who had gone through the, the public hearings. And they mainly focus on Marie Ivanovich, who was the ambassador to Ukraine that yeah. Giuliani and them forced out prior to them then trying to run their bribery scheme yeah. on the Ukraine. 
And they use her testimony to point out that she didn't bring any evidence of bribery. bribery. And it's like, of course she didn't bring any evidence of bribery because the whole purpose of her testimony was to highlight that they pushed her out of the way so that they like, then could do the bribery. Yeah. Right? So she's like a fact witness of like the part of the scheme, but not like the yeah. entire process. And then Pollock complains that uh, that no one is going to read the transcripts that the Democrats did during the private hearings. And the thing is, they released them publicly, so anyone could read them. Yeah. But he's like, this gives Democrats a tactical advantage because they like had all these secret transcripts. And that's confusing to me because the Republicans also had access to those transcripts. So if there was any like exonerating evidence, it's also to a tactical advantage to the Republicans to then like they don't have to read the whole transcripts. They could just be like, remember that time when we got this person to say this and they yeah. could use it. But none of them have done that because there is no exonerating evidence. So what would end up happening then in this case? He remains president. So what's the point of any of this? So it's political, right? So the, one way that I've, I've heard it framed is this is going to put some senators who are more moderate in yeah. a tight position. So if you have moderate Republicans... So Susan Collins is an example of moderate Republican. Mm-hmm. And this puts her in a tough position because now she's going to have to vote on impeachment. And if she votes for, like, if she votes not to impeach Trump, then that's going to be used by the Democrats in during the election to be like, yeah. she tied herself to Trump. She can't play this game anymore where she says, I'm above the in-party fighting and bipartisan, blah, blah, blah. She can't do that anymore because you now tied yourself to Trump. So there's you can run a whole bunch of political ads showing that, no, Trump did all these bad things. And then hopefully that'll hurt their electoral chances. But I mean, wouldn't that also rally up more far right leading groups and even some conservatives that are more moderate? That was the argument. But they've had several elections since impeachment has started. Yeah. And they've all gone in favor of the Democrats. So what they found is... Impeachment has bolstered both Democratic and Republican turnout. Yeah. But so far, it has net benefited the Democrats. Hmm. Okay. So we'll see how it goes in the future. Ugh. But <laughs> uh, but that's pretty much it with Pollock. I did want to say one thing, because this is a standard with Pollock, is the phone going off. And I noticed that during this interview, the phone never went off. And I was like, why is that? And Ezra kind of explains it at the end. Oh, nice. Well, listen, Joel, it's a pleasure to catch up with you. I think we should do this more often, as long as you promise me that you're driving safely. First of all, I think it's sort of cool to have your sunglasses on and having (laughs) you driving around. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld does that driving in cars with comedians thing. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, it's... Why not? If you're, as long as you're watching the road, maybe this is the way for us to do it so we're not interrupting uh, the rest of your work. Joel Pollock was driving during the interview. But I love how, like, even Ezra, like, acknowledges at the end, is like, maybe we should do this more often so we're not interrupting your work. Because clearly every other time I call you, (laughs) your phone is going off. So we'll move on to November 10th, 20th. Ezra begins the episode by praising the Hong Kong protesters. And we've mentioned this before on the show, but, I mean, this is one subtly good point that Ezra has, which is we, we support the Hong Kong protesters as well. 
And Ezra does do a good job at first sort of like highlighting some real abuses that are occurring. And yeah. that is good. But he always seems to bring it back to like weird xenophobic reasons for preferring Hong Kong. And that's not cool. And very imperialistic stuff like uh, claiming that we should have like the British take it over again. <laughs> yeah, really not cool. But then he calls for... Uh, Trudeau to take Chinese or specifically Hong Kong uh, individuals as refugees instead of refugees from Middle Eastern countries and it gives you a rundown of why Trudeau should do this and it is super racist so mm. here it goes but what about these real refugees from Hong Kong I'm talking about the political refugees, the dissidents standing up to the People's Liberation Army. I'm not talking about taking... Just highlight there that, like, these are real refugees. Yeah. Unlike those fake. other refugees. Taking yeah. Eight million people from Hong Kong. Canada can't do that. But what about taking a few hundred, a few thousand, some of the student leaders who, God forbid, may be facing death? Isn't that the test? And here's the thing. Unlike Trudeau's favored style of refugee, well, here's a few characteristics about these Chinese democracy activists in Hong Kong. First of all, they obviously have a deep commitment to Western values, the rule of law, separation of political parties from the justice system, the independent courts, free speech. They bring those things that Trudeau's refugees from Syria and Somalia simply don't. They speak English. In fact, they speak very good English with a trace of a British accent. Oh my God. A trace of a British accent. That's important. <laughs> Again, it's super creepy and racist. Well-educated. In fact, the students who have been leading the protests are usually university students. In many cases, they're wealthy or entrepreneurial. And, of course, Hong Kong has virtually no welfare state. These are not people who, if they came to Canada, would simply go right on the dole. We know they don't have the welfare mindset. We know they're not jihadists. In fact, it's been remarkable how peaceful and orderly these protests in Hong Kong have been. And finally, and I don't think this is insignificant, they would be a counterweight to the communist mainland Chinese immigrants in Canada. As we've shown you in recent weeks, a great many communist party types from the mainland China have come to Canada and are, you know, they're having Chinese legions. They're, they're having communist party events in Canada. And I think it would be very important and useful to have freedom-loving Hong Kong Chinese here in Canada to help cauterize the Chinese community here. <laughs> Like, I mean, there's a lot to unpack. Oh, like all of it, like saying they're not jihadists, they speak English, they appreciate Western that Like, it's every dog whistle after dog whistle that it's like to the point where it's not a dog whistle anymore. No, it's not a dog whistle. Also, like, notice uh, just, just a random thing of the noise that's going on in that clip. So, Ezra has moved from the forest, now he's outside of the venue where the debate took place, and you can hear people packing things up. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I love how he's like, they're going to influence the mainland Chinese people by making them not communists because they're having communist legions. Can you believe that? Now, he got some blowback from some of his audience for a point that I'm going to make here, which is the first thing that I thought, which is like, why do you want them to leave? Because it's good that they're there fighting for their rights. If they come here, they're no longer fighting for those rights. Yeah. I mean... 
sure, if shit hits the fan, you figure it out then. But, like, right now, they're, like, in this position to exert influence and power. And you want to hope that they, they take advantage of that. You don't want to be like, hey, all the leaders of this movement now come to our country. <laughs> Like way to like just ruin the movement and and yeah, I think they're there for a purpose. They want to flee. They would choose to flee. Yeah. And then Ezra does something that kind of surprises me, which is he starts a petition to convince the Canadian government oh. to get uh, those Hong Kong refugees, as he calls them. But are they applying to be refugees? Are they coming over? Like, what are they supposed to do? You need to come (laughs) over because we need Hong Kong refugees. So sorry, but you're going to leave your country. You're going to have to come to Canada now. (laughs) Is that the expectation? It's like, I'm not a refugee. No, 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 no. Yes, you are. You get in our country. We need a higher proportion. You get in our country, you refugee. But I like where I'm from. No! You have Western values and you speak good English. Get out of my country. (laughs) That British accent we need. But I was surprised with the petition signing, only because he usually does this when it's for, like, there's a popular topic that's bringing a lot of traffic to the website. Yeah. And it's a way to capitalize on that. But here, it's I don't think he's really capitalizing on anything. It seems to me like this is possibly, like, a genuine petition in the sense where I think he he literally wants Hong Kong... Uh, the people of those protests to come over here because they prefer them to the communists or the Islamo-fascists and whatever is rattling around in his brain, right? Jihadists, right? Yeah. Then the, the segment ends with the what would normally be the interview portion, but since Ezra is in Alberta, he just plays a, a Kian segment. And so again, Kian Bexley, one of the, the rebel crew, he, they basically printed out the petition for Don Cherry and like put it in like a, you know, it's bound and it's got a glossy front page <laughs> with like Don Cherry's face on it. And they like give it to the CBC and like other places. They like hand deliver it. Oh my God. And so they play this like long clip of Kian hand delivering the petition to Ron McLean okay. at some sort of event. And they play the audio of it, and it's just, it's noisy and it, uh, inaudible, so yeah. I'm not like, going to play it. But basically, Ron McLean's wife starts losing her shit, <laughs> as you do. And uh, they play the whole interaction, and then it ends with Kian just basically being like, how, how dare Ron McLean like, ruin his best friend's life? <laughs> On Cherry, his yeah. best friend? I guess. But I'm not going to play any of that. That's how that episode ended. So we're just moving along. We're on November 21st. And Ezra starts this episode really mad because a BC politician asked the legislature to look into several possibilities for combating racist and hateful behaviors, Hmm. including ticketing perpetrators. And then he spends the rest of the episode basically saying our whole society has collapsed. (laughs) <laughs> they just want to censor everything they're they're free speech in this to... how come they're not arresting people using n-words and rap songs <laughs> oh my gosh yeah he goes on a, a pretty ape shit after that and there was really nothing to take from that because again it's just a bc politician 
going, hate speech is bad. Let's see if there's anything that we can do. Have we thought about ticketing perpetrators? Like, that's, yeah. That's the extent. It could be that they go back going, no, that'll be infeasible for these very, like, reasons. Yeah. And then that ends that, right? But Ezra has to behave like this is the worst thing to ever happen in Canada because Canada is all about censoring and ruining people. So then we get to the interview section, and it was a bit more interesting because he had on a national columnist named Sue Ann Levy and she's been on before but we didn't really like dive into her and she's there to discuss a recent trip I guess she had to a building that's hosting refugees in Toronto it's like this office building that they've converted to like an old one yeah yeah and they begin the clip by talking about how everyone likes uh, to call her a bigot just for doing these things okay And the one thing that they don't address, which is really important given the topic that they're actually doing, is that she has done similar stories before, but in really worse ways. (laughs) So in October of 2018, Levy wrote a column about refugees being kept in the Radisson Hotel in Toronto, and her article claimed that refugees were sacrificing goats in this hotel. Several hours after the article was released, there was an arson attempt on the hotel. And the suspect, as as far as I can tell, was never caught and therefore no motive uh, has been revealed mm-hmm. and it remains a mystery. But a photo was released of what, like, what looks like a white woman leaving the, the scene. And Levy is angry that anyone would even dare blame her for the arson, right? But it's clearly if you're telling people that this place is where people are sacrificing goats and like all this stuff... That you're not creating, uh, that you're you're instilling in the public this idea that these people are bad. But it was yeah. several hours before it took place. And the other thing is, Faith Goldie had been doing videos outside the building for a while as well. So there's other people stirring the fervor against this uh, hotel that's hosting refugees. Yeah. Now here's the kicker. Her evidence that there was goat sacrifices in this hotel was from a review of TripAdvisor. Hmm. And when this was pointed out, the National News Media Council uh, investigated and they found that Sue Ann Levy committed a serious breach of journalistic standards of accuracy in reporting. Which is... Yeah? Yeah. (laughs) You don't go to Trip Reviewed uh, and then just cite that as factual information. Now, this has since been removed from all the stories, but it seems really telling that this doesn't get brought up when Ezra is interviewing her for a similar story investigating another building. Yeah. Now, this new story is a bit, let's say, there's no goats being sacrificed in her story or whatever, and their main issue seems to be the costs that have gone into the building. But... The, and and to that extent, like I don't know how much is that true, how much that is true, and I would have to like look into it. But you might want to, like it's clear that she has this problem with these refugee buildings in general, and goes there and makes these yeah. things, and then complains that people call her a bigot. Meanwhile, she took something from TripAdvisor <laughs> and reported it as accurate because it fit her bigoted narrative. Yeah. Right? Uh, so that was that day, Sue Ann Levy. And she still writes for the National Post, this Toronto Sun. She uh, gets to write in, in papers still, even though 
she did this, which seems despicable to me. We'll move on to the last day, November 22nd. And Ezra begins this day by talking about Greta Thunberg. And again, she's mentally ill. Did you know her mom was crazy? And they play that clip of her. Yeah, that's most of the beginning. And then the reason why he's talking about her again is because there's this guy in Alberta named Steve Lee who's going and giving talks to schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like a 20-year-old, 26, I think he said. And I guess he's funded by some environmental groups. Okay. But he goes around teaching kids about global warming. Yeah. And Ezra is super mad about this. And he wants uh, Jason Kenney's war room to go after him. <laughs> and I'm mean, nothing about the segment is worth playing. It's pretty much uh, Ezra. Ezra then plays the clip of the Stephen Lee guy talking, and does like what we do to Ezra, where like you play the clip, you give some comments, but his his criticism was super weak. So, for example, one of the examples is Lee talks about how cattle production uses a lot of water, so it would be better to like reduce meat consumption. And Ezra goes, what? Look at that. There's a bottle of water next to him. Guess who's wasting water now? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's like, you got him, Ezra. <laughs> Destroy. <laughs> he then uh, criticizes Lee for not showcasing every time he gives his presentation that he's sponsored by these environmental groups. And like, sure. Yeah, but so does Ezra. Exactly. Ezra never discloses that he is, or at least was, a Coke-funded oil propagandist. Yeah. So, whatever. But then, Ezra makes a weird deplatforming argument, and his whole thing is that deplatforming is just terrible and you can't do it. And here he is explaining why Stephen Lee needs to be deplatformed. Steve Lee is not a scientist. He's not an expert. He's a bottom-paid-for propagandist who talks like he thinks he's the messiah, he gets 760 grand a year for his propaganda agency, and he's walking right into school and scaring children. Stop it. And if teachers and principals won't stop it, stop them. You don't have the right to terrorize children. (laughs) You don't have the right to terrorize children, which is interesting, because he constantly goes on about how, like, you have the right to say offensive things and like you shouldn't be censored for it. Yeah, exactly. And there should be, I have the right to say whatever I want. And here he is saying that like, no, like your speech ends when it's speech that terrorizes a child. Well, how do you like carve those boundaries out? Like, I would say that everything Ezra says pretty much terrifies children, <laughs> terrifies me. <laughs> I'm not a child. Or am I? But yeah, so that's the first half of that episode. And then Ezra, again, interviews Kian Bext. <laughs> and this interview, again, nothing happens. Basically, Kian is now in Hong Kong. Oh. And he's going to be covering the Hong Kong protests. Okay. And he's like, don't worry. We sent him with a gas mask. What? And, and, <laughs> and part of me is like, having like watched several... Now I'm experienced with Kian, and I'm like, Ezra sent this guy in to a very tense situation. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, why are you doing this, Kian? But 
uh, I guess I look forward to him being shot by a rubber bullet or something. <laughs> Pepper sprayed in the eyes or something like, like that. Like, who knows? Yeah. Like, there's ways to, like, avoid it and everything. But it just seems like such a, what is it? Like, inappro- like inappropriate thing to do. Like, you, Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, but anyways, in part because, like, it would be different if you're some, like, uh, uh, you go in with a team who's prepared for these things, who've done these things in the past, yeah. or, like, you're someone who has had this previous experience. But Kian is some, like, bloke from Alberta who who basically just harasses He's people like, like Greta Thunberg. Yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and just, like, go to Hong Kong and <laughs> these protests. That's crazy. So, yeah, yeah it, it does not seem responsible or appropriate. And that's it! probably going what the hell was this main segment and let me tell you this isn't really relevant to anything that's happening in the world okay it's just a really stupid segment that i thought we would spend a little time on because he says a lot of weird shit in this episode (laughs) and it's it's a wild ride and not only do i think it makes for a better podcast to do it so that's why we're doing it but i think i think it does uncover some like key insights into Ezra's views of the world. So we're going to begin by listening to Ezra explain some of the tough questions. Hey, I have a question for you. Was Barack Obama the first black president? Of course he was. That's him with his dad. But actually, he's half black. His mom, pictured here, was white. So was he black? That's it. We're talking about race science. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, what a weird way to start off the episode. Is Barack Obama black? So, as it does say, even after that, that uh, obviously Obama is black. Hmm. But he, he randomly, at, at this point, he highlights some guy named Tariq Nasheed, who claims that Obama is not actually a true black American because he doesn't know the true black experience, such as the history of slavery and Jim Crow. Yeah. And I'm not sure why Ezra is referring to uh, Nasheed in this instance, but like also the argument is just weird because Obama doesn't need to come out of the legacy of slavery in that he's born to people who are slaves in order to feel the effects of racism in America. Uh, I mean, there's going to be differences for different people, right? Yeah. Different upbringings. But it doesn't mean that he's not going to feel those effects. The other thing is Tariq Nasheed is just a, a random person. I had known him before for other reasons. And I checked in with some friends to be like, what's up with this guy? <laughs> I remember hearing things about him. Yeah. And they came back uh, showing me some tweets of him being very transphobic. And he's into, like, some weird aspects of black nationalism. And I say weird because I'm not necessarily, like, I kind of understand some aspects of black nationalism, but he's into the the weird areas of black nationalism. And super homophobic, transphobic. Like, we should have, like, our own black nation state. Yeah. Yeah. It's a quasi-fascistic version, but for black people. Yeah. So Ezra does that, and then... He goes from that to go on a, a tangent about how Black Lives Matter is not needed in Canada because we never had slaves. And he also, then, then again, like, again, Ezra, constant tangents, right? So Black Lives Matter, we don't need it, never had slaves. And then he's like, you know what? 
And we didn't even need to occupy Toronto because <laughs> there were no banking problems in Canada. What? <laughs> well, we didn't have like the huge banking bailouts like the U.S. did. Yeah, but, but we're like affected by it. No, we clearly were affected with it. And it doesn't mean that we don't have our, our own sort of like issues, right? No, I know. And it's not really about, it's not really specifically even about that, right? Like it's also about um, the, the massive growth of wealth or gaps in wealth yep. between the 1% and the 99. And that was a huge thing the globalization of capitalism in itself and the intensification of capitalism and the fact that a lot of people are doing worse off today than they have in the past economically. And so there was a bigger message with that movement than just the stock market crash of 2008. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. But he's, he boils it all down to these movements are bad because they argue for regulations to solve a problem that doesn't exist in the first place. That's his argument. Okay. And specifically, with Black Lives Matter, he's upset because they advocate for affirmative action. And I just want to say that Black Lives Matter Toronto actually does not demand any, <laughs> any affirmative action policies. In fact, most of their demands have to do with education and dealing with the incarceral state, which even in Canada disproportionately targets black communities. Yeah. And so that's not affirmative action, but, you know, what are you going to do? Ezra calls affirmative action policies unjust and racist because they favor one race over another, and then uses uh, an important metaphor. We should be equal before the law, regardless of our race. The universal symbol of Western justice is uh, a woman holding the scales of justice while wearing a blindfold, that's the key point. She's blind to irrelevant criteria like race when making a judgment on the facts. You might be wondering why I played that clip. And here's why like, we talked recently on the, the show about uh, justice being blind. And I used it in reference to the fact that Ezra was arguing that he wished Canada uh, was more tuned in to the political leanings of their judges. Yeah. Wanting to like put more conservative judges on the Canadian Supreme Court. And one reason you don't want to politicize the court is for that reason in particular, that you don't want to, you would prefer your judges to be political, quote unquote, politically neutral, even though you can't reach that like objective state of mind. Or, okay. Right. Like it's, it's obviously not something you can achieve necessarily. Everyone's going to have their political yeah. meetings, but you would hope that when they're doing their, judicial proceedings that they aren't, uh, that they're trying to be as fair as possible, but they're not letting their political inclinations or their racial inclinations and all these things get in the way, right? Yeah. So it's like weird for him to like acknowledge that point, but then still, uh, and, and of course, part of it is that when it comes to race, of course, that's the thing that he wants to not be discussed and acknowledged, but, yeah. uh, but he still wants uh, conservative judges rather than liberal judges. The other thing is, there's a lot of discourse around the idea of whether or not you actually want uh, blindness when it comes to racial issues in the law. And so there was this book written by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow, and its subtitle is Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Mm -hmm. And the point that's being made in her book is that a justice system that pretends to be colorblind will miss the real systemic effects of white supremacy that will continue to disproportionately 
negatively affect black communities. Yeah. So take, for example, the fact that white people and black people use drugs at similar rates, yet police are more likely to patrol black communities, and thus black communities are more likely to experience high rates of arrests for drug possession. This then gives the police the narrative that they're just patrolling areas in which there's higher rates of crime. However, the only reason the black community has higher rates of crime is because they were historically patrolled more frequently. Yeah. The designation of being an area with a higher crime rate is perceived as racially neutral when in fact it is coming from this legacy. So the, all this to say is this pre pretense to racial neutrality or colorblindness that helps to perpetuate the system's racial oppression when the goal should be to alleviate them in some fashion. And it also does not mean that the laws or regulations that help to address these issues, which specifically reference or focus on race, are therefore racist, which is what Ezra is trying to claim. And this was just the opening. You may be wondering, why is Ezra talking about all this? <laughs> to my point today, here's a new story from the Daily Mail. Anyone should be allowed to identify as black, regardless of the color of their skin or background, say, say university leaders. So Ezra went to the bastion of great quality journalism, the Daily Mail. <laughs> yes. Uh, and we will leave aside for now the accuracy of this Daily Mail headline and get to the real reason Ezra wants to cover this story. If this <laughs> can simply say, no, 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 my name's Jessica or Jennifer or whatever it is, and I'm a woman, and if you can demand that female estheticians must whack genitals, female genitals, if you can just say that woman and go into women's bathrooms, if athletes who can't beat other men, but who then just say, oh, you know what, today I'm a girl, and then go on to crush actual girls in sports. Uh, if we have to go along with that, these are all trans athletes I'm showing you. If we have to suspend our disbelief and actually use their pronouns, if, if we're going to do that, why not say you're a different race and make everyone else abide it? I mean, it's actually less crazy. Apparently, transracialism to Ezra is less crazy than transgenderism. And what it boils down to is that this is all really just a matter of math. I, I just mentioned that Barack Obama is as much black and white. He's, it's just true. He's 50% he's white. But you can't be 50% female. You either have an XY chromosome and are male, or you have an XX chromosome and you're female. There's no, there's no halfway about it. But there is a halfway with race, that Barack Obama. There's a quarter way. There's an eighth, like if one of your grandparents is a certain race. That's why racist regimes, like US slavery in the South and Nazi Germany, they had to have complicated math. I thought he was going to say, that's why they're so flawed. But he was just like, that's why they needed the math. This is where things are getting a little weird. Because you would expect Ezra to want to take the line of this essential, this way of categorizing races as essential to go away. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't think he's against that. I think he literally thinks that you could do these mathematical calculations on race. He just doesn't think that you should be prejudiced, I guess, racially. 
but he is. Right, but he believes, and he believes in racial science, in this, like, innate differences, that there, you are one-eighth black if you have, like, one-eighth of a bloodline of black people. But I also want to highlight the, the whole, like, you can't, you can't be 50% of women, or you can't be 50% a woman. And he highlights that either you have XX chromosomes and you're a female, or you have XY and you're a male. I just got to say, like, there's cases of XY individuals who have uteruses. Yeah, we talked about this with the Jessica Neves case. Right. We talked about, like, how it's actually so diverse. And one of the things that's really crazy about it is, like, some people might not even know their entire lives. Like, they could have, like, an XY chromosome and still be female. Which, again, is why, like, thinking about innate differences always bugs me. But then but then also, like, in terms of, like, is it a 50-50 thing? Like, thinking about it in terms of math is just kind of stupid. It's just that there's this diverse range of different possibilities that you can get. So, but he's he thinks that there is a way to mathematically count races, but there's no mathematical ways to count genders except he kind of does because it's it's either on or off man or woman xx or xy so <laughs> but i mean most people believe that though oh for sure like you know you talk to people and you ask hey what's your background right and they're like well i'm a half this half that i'm about a quarter of this and i did have one great 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 grandparent that was this so i guess like 116th right oh, or it's I- the fact even like in canada we have laws that determine, like, for example, First Nation status, how much of a half, yeah. like, you only have to be, I think it's like one twelfth First Nation's ancestry in order to... Well, that's going to get relevant in a few seconds. Oh, okay, but we, cool. there, there are, I, I don't think that what Ezra is saying is necessarily out of the norm. No, it's actually very common. It's just that it gets into weird areas. So... As it goes from this to discussing all the different ways that they racially measured slaves and how Nazi Germany had different calculations for what qualifies you as a Jew. And he talks about how this is all described in terms of blood. And I do want to highlight that, like, notice here, Ezra is saying that you can, in fact, measure race. And he's walking this fine line talking about how grotesques these measurements are so he even says like these are grotesque measurements but he's not saying like why they're grotesque right it's like the fact that like people went through the motions to measure it is grotesque but he's not debating the fact that this is true like you even heard him like in the last clip going, it's true obama is both 50 percent white and 50 percent black but he goes into a bit more detail but you see my point sorry to show you all those gross things but that's the point if you're going to start measuring, because you can be both black and white, and there's lots of different combinations. You can be many races, actually. You know, there's a booming industry right now with companies like, there's one called 23andMe. They let you uh, spit into like a test tube and send them your saliva, and they tell you what your genetic background is, um, what, what mix you are. It's not perfectly accurate, but it's interesting enough. Uh, which proved, by the way, in case you needed any proof that Elizabeth Warren was lying when she said she was uh, American Indian. She said she was Cherokee. In fact, she's at most, at most, one one thousand and twenty-fourth 
Native American. But even then, it's not actual Cherokee blood, as she had lied, but rather a Central American gene they're measuring. He's actually talking about this as if it's like a real thing. Like, and, and the weird... The one part that I don't understand that, that's confusing to me is how he agrees that there can be these mix and combinations. So it's like, you can be like two thirds this, one third this, and like, you can be various combinations. You had to, somehow she's lying, even though she has like a portion of it. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously there's issues with Elizabeth Warren and her using the label. And I'm for now, I'm just gonna put it aside because we're talking about racial sciences. Yeah. And just get to the root of that. Like, how do you, how do you come up with a number to be like, this is the number you reach when like, you're now legit to call yourself Aboriginal or not. And when you start asking those questions, it gets a little bit weird to me, but Ezra goes on. And that's my point today. I know it's taking me some time to get to it. That's why I like this idea of anyone and everyone just being able to say what race they are by simply <laughs> declaring it, like Jonathan Yaniv declares he's a woman. Because Elizabeth Warren didn't make up the story about her race just to be more interesting. She did it to get benefits, real financial benefits, to steal those benefits, really, from actual Aboriginal people. So she stole those benefits from actual Aboriginal people. So even though she has some of the blood, she's not an actual because she hasn't met some sort of threshold that he believes exists. And I'm not sure what the threshold be, right? Does it need to be 50%? So Obama's 50% white, black. But if he was 40 to 60, is he then black? Or, like, how do, you, how do you do this calculation? It doesn't get into any of that. But I would be interested to know what he thinks about all that. And of course, this has to do with Warren using this to jump some sort of theoretical cue. And the thing is, the cue isn't to like disadvantage the aboriginals. What he's worried about is Ezra, or not Ezra, Elizabeth, in competition with other whites around her, pretended to take on some minority status so that she could then jump ahead of all the other whites and get the prestigious university position or something, right? That's that's what he's, he's yeah. the most worried about. But that's why I welcome this news from the United Kingdom. Here, let me, let me read a bit more. Anyone should be allowed to identify as black, regardless of the color of their skin or background, according to left-wing university leaders. The Universities and Colleges Union has set out its stance in a report on the ongoing row about whether men should be able to self-identify as women and be treated as female, regardless of their anatomy. The UCU's position statement did not just stand by its support for self-identification of gender, but also insisted people can choose their own race, saying our rules commit us to ending all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and stereotyping. UCU has a long history of enabling members to self-identify, whether that is being black, disabled, LGBT+, or women. Huh. So you can self-identify as, as being disabled, too. Well, um... I'm I'm disabled. I'm obviously fat. I have a receding hairline. I've come to terms with that. But that's a medical condition, right? What's the what's the fancy word? That's alopecia. I think that's what? a medical word for slowly going bald. That's, no, um, no, that's not what it is. There are people out there who have too much flatulence. Look, I'm being scientific here. I'm using medical words. I didn't say fart. Ha ha! He's using poop humor. 
<laughs> so yes, in the article, it says that uh, he, he quotes a bit of it there about the ability to identify or choose the race that you are. And then goes in, after this, he goes into Yaniv claiming her disability as well. But he notices in the article that it also says that you can self-identify as a disability. And I want to just flag that for a second because none of the coverage talked about the ability to self-identify with a disability. That didn't seem to spark anyone's uh, recollection or like didn't cause them to like freak out like the race thing did for some reason. But now you are probably still wondering uh, what the actual fucking point is here because <laughs> he keeps on meandering over and over again. Yeah. And we aren't there yet. And uh, I mean, we're close. We're so close to getting to it. But now Ezra wants to take another diversion. And it's a diversion into uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh. And so we're going to play this clip. Well, I should first state the reason he's talking about Sasha Baron Cohen is because the Daily Mail article talks about Sasha Baron Cohen. It's not even clear why the Daily Mail article talks of Sasha Baron Cohen. So here we go. Here's uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. So he's he's a white guy, but one of his characters that he plays, he's a Jewish white guy, he pretends to be a black gangster in the UK. And I've seen a ton of guys like this. Keep it real. The member Keep for Staines will real. be banned from the house. Is it because I is black? Is it because I is black? He, you know, I don't even know if he's allowed to make that joke anymore. Now, this gets mentioned in the Daily Mail article, I think mostly because of that identifying as another race, even though it's a fictional character identifying as another race. And even then, the character doesn't go in blackface. And I don't remember this ever being... A controversy if it was a controversy but notice that ezra makes this about political correctness yeah, yeah obviously that's what he's going to do i thought it was really ironic considering that a couple days later uh sasha barrett cohen gave this speech to uh i can't remember what the group is but it was basically a speech that was like criticizing uh social media and its promotion of online harassment and stuff like this. Well, no, it was more so well, about publishing fake propaganda. information and the lack of fact-checking on uh, on Facebook. I mean, it had, it had to do with all of that. And yeah, and he was really angry because he's like, I like you shouldn't be able to say whatever you want just because you're influencing election results and that's not okay. And... Obviously, Ezra's not going to be cool with that because it's going to cut against his own of game course, because yeah. Ezra's going to be kicked off the thing. But the irony is, like, listen, I'm going to play you a bit of the clip of Cohen. And I didn't put the music in. I think this is taken from one of those clip aggregators, now this or whatever. Okay. So there's, like, ominous music playing while, uh, well, not um, kind of like, oh, no, social media is bad. Here's this music. Mm -hmm. uh, but the interesting thing is what Sasha says at the end which clearly rebukes this whole like appeal to political correctness in his speech Zuckerberg said that one of his main <laughs> is to uphold as wide a definition of freedom of expression as possible it sounds good yet our freedoms are not only an end in themselves they're also the means to another end as you say here in the US the right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But today these rights are threatened by hate, conspiracies, and lies. The ultimate aim of society should be to make sure that people are not targeted, not harassed, and not murdered 
because of who they are, where they come from, who they love, or how they pray. If we make that our aim, if we prioritize truth over lies, tolerance over prejudice, empathy over indifference, and experts over ignoramuses, then maybe, just maybe, we can stop the greatest propaganda machine in history. We can save democracy. We can still have a place for free speech and free expression. And most importantly, my jokes will still work. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I love that because that's, that's similar things have been said by George Carlin over the years as well, which uh, pointing out to other people who uh, end up using racialized jokes and all these. Yeah. Being like, you, why would you want to punch down like that? Like, like, of course, freedom of speech, like you can say that if you want to, but like, then I'm going to think that you're a dick, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like funny how like Ezra's trying, again, brings up Sasha Baron Cohen because of this character who, who again, it, it, it seems to me like the Daily Mail was using the allergy thing to be like, here's a case of somebody identifying as black, but it's a fictional character. And if that's the but only- I also think in uh, the movie, that's kind of a whole thing is he's not actually black, but thinks he is. <laughs> I've never seen uh, the Ali G. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's kind of the like premise of the movie. Like he thinks he is, but he's not actually. That's amazing. So I mean, the whole thing's stupid, but I, I just love the fact that because Ezra didn't plan on Sasha Baron Cohen making the speech, where no. in the end Sasha basically undercuts everything that Ezra just said. But now we're going to get to it, and I mean this: we're finally going to get to it. Ezra's going to lay it all on the table. I like the self description thing. Because if everyone can be any race of their choosing, it ceases to have any legal power, any legal meaning. Once upon a time, I bet that black slaves in America or Jews in Nazi Germany or blacks and coloreds in South Africa, if they could have simply identified as white or Aryan, you know, to avoid the laws against them. Imagine if a black man in, in Louisiana in the year 1800 could simply say, no, I declare that I'm white. I say so, so give me my full rights as a man. It's a strange uh, hypothetical fantasy to even express it. But if merely identifying as something were substantial or meaningful in law, it would render racist laws inoperative, wouldn't it? I mean, this is crazy talk, but we're in the realm of crazy here. Back then, in the past, in, in this hypothetical scenario, people would have identified as white to get away from racist punishments against blacks or Jews. Today, people could identify as black to get away from racist punishments like, like quotas, affirmative action, other set-asides. I like the idea. I think it could destroy racism today, at least in some quarters. So he's saying the idea of self-identifying as racist is good because it'll basically render sort of legally race inert and therefore there goes affirmative action. <laughs> and the thing like, he's so close to getting into some like race as a social construct language, but notice like he, he only goes towards it being in terms of like a legal definition of race. Because, of course, he still believes that there's real biological race. Yeah. It's more of just like we can think of races as being uh, a social construct at the level of legality. And, and that's like weird to me because 
a race is clearly not real. And it's so it's not real biologically, but it's real socially. Yeah. And so you that's why you would want a legal definition, because race has real world effects. The reason why this is such an outlandish case of going, oh, all wouldn't it have been great if the slave could just identify as being white and therefore have all the legal benefits of a white person? Yeah. Is because the people in that time would go, I can see your skin, you're a slave. Yeah. Because it had nothing to do with some inherent biological quality. It just had to do with the fact of, I can see your skin and I'm going to create this category and shove everyone that has that skin tone, even though they come from different areas in the world and lump you all as a group and just call you slaves. Yeah. And so race is real. It has real world effects. It's just real socially. Yeah. That is... That's it, pretty much. Okay. That's the the end of this segment. But I'm going to go do a bit more detail about why Ezra is talking about this, which is this stupid Daily Mail article and that headline that the UCU, which is the University and College Union that represents all higher education faculty and educators in the UK, and states that any the, the title of the Daily Mail article says that anyone should be allowed to identify as black regardless of color uh, or their skin or background. Now, how much of that headline do you think is accurate? <laughs> Caitlin shrugged for the record on this yeah. audio media. <laughs> yeah. Was... So the article is referring to a statement that's released by the UCU, which again is the University uh, and College Union, regarding the position on trans inclusion. And this is what it states. So I'm quoting the, the opening paragraph of, of this piece. UCU has a long history from predecessor unions of enabling members to self-identify whether that is being black, disabled, LGBT+, or women. At recent congresses and further in higher education conferences, policy has been made or more options, uh, on more options than binary genders on forms, using the acronym LGBT+, to ensure an inclusive approach to gender identities, which is different to that assigned at birth and or their sexual identity being other than heterosexual, Gender-neutral toilets and facilities support campaigns to remove the requirement and practice of gender assignment at birth, promotion of non-heteronormative and non-binary identities. So that's the paragraph. Notice how almost none of that has to do with race. Yeah. That the only thing it says is self-identify whether that is being black, disabled, LGBT+, right? And notice why that is. No one who's coming to a UCU event or filling out a UCU form is going to give themselves up to a 23andMe test to make sure that whatever they sign as their self-identification of race on a form... That's what I figured it was. What they meant... (laughs) Yeah. Like, when they go, do you identify with some of these groups so they know how much of, like, their membership is of a certain group or a population, right? Right. Yeah, that's what I figured this was. Even, like, that's the thing with the disability thing that I told you to flag. Like... Imagine if, like, you put on the form that you have a disability, and then you show up at the conference, and they go, let me poke you for a bit and make sure that you... <laughs> that I brought a medical practitioner that. just to yeah. verify that Just you to really... verify that you filled out this form correctly. <laughs> and therefore, when you go to some talk that has to do with disability rights, you definitely for sure have a disability. Yeah, yeah. No, we just accept that whatever people identify is how we're going to yeah. approach it. And this also doesn't mean that people aren't going to uh, 
end up in morally complicated positions when they choose to identify it as something that they're not. Or just in the case of Rachel Dolezal on the stage, or with uh, Elizabeth Warren in the whole indigenous identification. These are both cases, and again, we don't need to go into all the, the nuances of it, where there was some moral issue with how they identified. And nothing about this statement says <laughs> that we just have, they identified, and therefore we have to accept it. Nothing about that. The other thing is that the Daily Mail article cites this philosopher named Kathleen Stock, and she seems to be the whole, sort of, the only person that brought this to their attention. So she is a philosophy professor in the UK, a part of this union, and she wrote that, uh, this this position was nonsensical anti-intellectual propaganda and the daily mail article said that that quote referred to the race stuff but it wasn't it was directed at the trans stuff because kathleen stock is a known what i'm calling fart which is a feminist appropriating <laughs> radical transphobe okay and is constantly defended by other right-wing philosophers and in fact as someone who existed in the philosophical realm uh she tends to be considered a general embarrassment to the philosophical community for her stances against trans people, uh, except for the other anti-trans groups that exist still within, within philosophy. So anyways, Ezra just did an entire segment covering a Daily Mail article that highlighted a transphobe's point about gender and then spun it about race, and in the process he tried to make a point about making race not legally relevant but still giving credence to its underlying biological reality, when in reality, race is not a biological category, it is a social category, which means it's definitely something that should be legally considered since race has real social effects in terms of discrimination. And once again, Ezra is wrong about everything. The end. <laughs> heard so far please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news if you want to stay informed about what we're doing you can also find us on twitter at imperial news with a z we have a private facebook group called imperial news we also have a discord set up you can find that link on our twitter and lastly you can email us any questions at imperial news whoa at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com and i will get to some of them at the end of each show if you have any I would also like to thank my friend Mason Tickle who provided the Star Wars-inspired transition beats. You can go find his album at striatum.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. And if you are an activist sued for helping to cancel Ezra's book signing, be sure to sue him for insinuating that you are a Nazi. Albumbia, Albumbia, how lovely are your wheat fields.